0: Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It is good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing all right wherever you are. I have a great episode for you today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. My guest today is Patrick DeWitt author of a new novel called The Librarianist.
1: Page-turner is often presented as in a sort of pejorative light, and I, I I don't mean to perpetuate that. I think that there's different reasons to turn the page. You know, sometimes it's purely because of the plot and you have to find out what happens to the characters next, but sometimes it's the language that's carrying you through, or the observations are carrying you through, or what's not said is carrying you through. So, But I, I agree that it's certainly a hope of mine that somebody reading any of my books is turning the pages. (laughs) All
0: right. That was Patrick DeWitt. His new novel is called The Librarianist out this week from Echo. The Librarianist is a novel about a man named Bob Comet, a retired librarian, a person who has lived a mostly solitary life, an introvert's life, a literary life. And in his retirement, Bob Comet begins to volunteer at a local senior center. And when he does, it changes his life. It brings him into contact with a painful and complicated episode from his past, his romantic past. And so ultimately, The Librarianist is a novel about a man who loves books, who has devoted his life to books. Without ever fully understanding how his own life may be an affecting narrative in its own right, my conversation with Patrick Dewitt is coming up momentarily. So, before we get started, a quick reminder that I do a once-a-week email newsletter. You can subscribe to my newsletter for free at bradlisty.com or other ppl.com. I would love it. If you would subscribe to the newsletter, it's pretty straightforward. I will remind you or let you know about the latest episodes of the podcast. I also share a few links to things that I have been reading and finding interesting. That's it. So if you would like to subscribe to the newsletter, again, you can do so at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. If you would like to support this show, if you are fond of this show, if you would like to see it continue into the future, you can support The Other People Show and the work that I do over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com otherpplpod. So my guest, once again, is Patrick DeWitt. He is the best-selling author of several novels, including French Exit, The Sisters Brothers which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize as well as the novels Under Major Domo Minor and Ablutions. His latest novel The Librarianist publishes on July 4th on Echo Books and I'm very happy to have had the chance to meet and to talk with Patrick DeWitt. This is his first time on The Other People Show. And I'm very excited to share our conversation with you guys right now. So let's get to it. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Patrick DeWitt. And his new novel, one more time, is called The Librarianist. What is the dedication of this novel? You dedicate the novel to David Berman. uh, And I'm such a fan, and I'm wondering what the relationship is there are you just a fan of his work and inspired by him or was he somebody that was in your life
1: uh both i met david through hunter kennedy who is the editor of a magazine called the minus times that published me and david people like sam lipsite
0: and you're referring to david berman the the late founder of the silver jews singer poet yeah lead singer of Purple Mountains. Right. A, yeah. You know, a beloved musician who who passed away a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, so David was uh I was a fan of David's through the music and the poetry and then it came time to look for blurbs for my first book, uh, Ablutions. And I wanted David to blurb the book and so I asked for his address through Hunter Kennedy of the Minus Times, which is a literary magazine that Drag City put out and i sent david a copy of you know like the manuscript of ablutions and he wrote me a postcard back and david sort of famously had pretty bad penmanship and the, the postcard was written in a circle so to read the postcard you had to sort of go like this made it <laughs> not much more complicated right you know and he said no i will not blurb your book but he said <laughs> because i don't blurb books i don't you know but if i did i would blurb this book and thank you very much So I thought, okay, that's funny. That was my experience with David Berman, but then he kept in touch. And, uh, I remember when my second book came out and it was up for the Booker prize. He sent me, um, a one word email and the word was con what the fuckulations. (laughs) And I, so we had a sort of, you know, we were in touch, but it wasn't particularly in depth. And then as time passed and, and our lives sort of Changed in similar ways in terms of like our domestic situations and, um, et cetera. We became closer and then it got, got to the point where we were just pals and we were in touch fairly often. We only ever met in person, I think six or seven times, but, um, we were in touch for the last few years of his life frequently and it was texting and emailing and occasional phone call. And I just, uh, we had a very easy, sweet friendship and I, his death, uh, had a big effect on me and it was part of the situation of his death and and, and uh, became a part of the writing of this book. Do you know what I mean? Like it was part of the experience of writing this book. This book was sort of a pushing a rock uphill feeling. And that was one of the reasons why it felt that way. And when it came time to de- dedicate the book, it seemed obvious that it should, it should go to David. I... I we would share work, you know, uh, he would send me lyrics and, and rough cuts of songs and I would send him whatever I was working on. And I just was wondering what would he think of this book and would it resonate with him or not. And uh, yeah, so it just seemed the least I could do, you know, just to doff my cap to him. And um, just as a gesture of our friendship and his generosity to me and uh, just the fact of my missing him. uh,
0: sure yeah I've lost a friend to suicide so I know it's it's but it's a particular way to lose somebody it's different and it it hits different and I think psychologically maybe it works on you it worked on me more there's more unknowns and I don't know it's a tough tough kind of loss
1: yeah well it leaves the people that are behind with a sense of like what more could I have done Uh, which is probably foolish uh and, and and not something that I don't think most people who commit suicide unless it's a sort of a revenge suicide, which David's was not, uh, I, I, it's sort of a fool's errand, I think, to search for, should I have written that email a little bit more, you know, there's this, 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 what if could I have saved this person? But, um, yeah, su- su- suicide creates a, a, a sort of vacuum and the people that are left behind to pick up the pieces tend to, or can become lost in that vacuum. It's um as opposed to somebody just falling ill and passing away. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah. David was on my mind a good bit during the writing of this book.
0: Yeah, I mean, last thing I'll say, you know, as somebody who did not know know David Berman, but who is a fan of his, is that I don't think there is an album in the twenty first century I have listened to more. And maybe it's an outgrowth of the fact that we lost him. But that Purple Mountains album, the last thing he made, to me is like. It's a, It's. It can be tough to listen to. It's pretty it's clear that he was struggling, you know, as he was working on it and the songs reflect mm-hmm. that. But there's also so much life and humor in the music, like at least from my perspective. I, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's such a beautiful album. Um, yeah. I don't know, people have different takes on it, but I, I just love that album.
1: Yeah, you know, it's special. And it's a testament to his. Um, what he had to put himself through to get that record completed. Was uh, it was significant? You know, he really was a he was a very strong man. Yeah. And uh, it's evident in that that record. That record's harder for me to listen to than the other ones, but I can listen to it from time to time. But maybe like one side or a couple songs. But it is a document of of uh, dysfunction and um, you know very serious depression. Yeah. It's harrowing, it's th- harrowing in its way, but it's also there's so many lovely moments on it too. It's just really a reflection of who David was
0: yeah and it's also got that wit you know it's not like a humorless at least you know there are some songs that maybe are, are darker and more serious than others but there is it's infused with his wit which... yeah you really couldn't
1: get away from his humor i mean up until till till the end it was there it was weaker i don't mean less funny i just mean there was less of it there than when he was feeling you know more, more joyful but um humor was something And he and I related, I think, a lot with this, which is just humor as a tool, but also humor as a way of life, a coping mechanism, and and something that does uh, bring us through um, the complicated times.
0: Sure. Well, I'm sorry for your loss, and he is definitely greatly missed and uh, just a great artist. So I had to ask you about it. And I I think, uh, you know, aside from that, I would like to kind of start at the beginning. You have an interesting... Like uh, at least geographical experience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're originally from Canada. You were raised. What it was on Vancouver Island.
1: I was born on Vancouver Island in Sydney, but then my my folks were living on Salt Spring Island at the time. So my understanding is that it was first two years in Salt Spring, which I don't really remember. I can very vaguely remember. I've returned and felt that sense of return, but. From there, it was down to Southern California at 2, and then back to B.C. Southern California was in the San Fernando Valley. And then at at 7, rather, it was back to B.C., Vancouver Island, or Vancouver in the mainland, West Vancouver. And then back to Southern California, again in the valley at the age of 10. And then at the age of 18, I moved back to Vancouver, the west end of Vancouver, by myself. And I spent 18, 19, 20 there. And then I returned to the to L.A., and I had the L.A. experience for many years. And I moved around a lot. I kept trying to get away from L.A., and I would go to Seattle, or I would go to Bainbridge Island, or I would go to wherever. I kept trying to sort of get away from that city. And finally, I had a child. I was married and had a child when I was 30. And I wrote a rough draft of my first book, Ablutions, and then I moved to Bainbridge Island off of Seattle for a couple years living with my folks and then I sold my first book and my family and I moved to Portland.
0: Okay. Where that's I, a lot. That's, that's a lot.
1: All up and down the West Coast. So it's quite, I mean there's a whole universe, the West Coast. It's quite different from North to South but um, I've been sort of stuck on this side of the country for my whole life. Which I don't lament but it's just sort of an oddity to me. Anyway, I've been in Portland since 2007 or something. Okay. Still here are here and my son's here and my dog who's in the room okay
0: my dog is in the room too
1: right back there i don't know if you can see her yeah <laughs> yeah yeah okay yeah, yeah. She's cool.
0: yeah but, uh, funny is learning
1: how to be quiet during podcasts and he's really doing good so i'm i just want to give a shout out to my dog really quick
0: yeah likewise i mean she had a, a moment earlier where she was sort of making noise but she she i think she knows at this point it's hope <laughs> just like i might as
1: well sleep right, right.
0: <laughs> so i read somewhere where you described your dad as and i think you know You might have been making light, but you called him a guy who never, quote, never recovered from reading Kerouac. Like you had a peripatetic youth and your folks seem to have like what, be be on the more free spirited side?
1: I would say so. They were maybe not hippies, but something close to hippies. Uh, And they definitely, you know, were party dogs, I think, for the, you know, up until a certain age when they hung it up. But I think of my childhood as you know my parents were very social and they were sort of quite glamorous in their way. They were both and still are, but you know they were both quite striking in terms of their looks and their uh, clothing. And yeah, they had big wild parties and uh, you know it was exciting as me and my brother would sort of be wandering around and it was uh, interesting that their lives changed later and they became quite quiet homebody types. but uh, their their young adulthood and my childhood, There was a lot of sort of wild wild nights in uh, Vancouver and in Southern California, but yeah, my father was always a book book reader and he still is. And his books were a curiosity to me. And at one point, I began to around twelve or thirteen, I guess, I began to sort of pick some of the books up. And and he steered me towards the Beats, not just because he liked those books, but because he felt that was a good entry point, which I think was uh, wise of him. You know, it wasn't too you know, that stuff's fairly inclusive, I guess. It's easy, easy to read and, and, and there's no, um, I don't know. I don't really, I can't really relate that much now, but as, as, a, as a young person, it was very exciting to me. Those books were really critical and, and um, recognizing that people like, uh, or post-Beats too, people like Broadigan or, or um, Hebert Selby, it was a, a sort of a, an ideal to aspire to. Have adventures and write about your life. You know, that was like my, my childish notion, I suppose.
0: Me too. Yeah, yeah. No, those boys, I think young men in particular are susceptible to that, but, and maybe young men of a certain generation. But
1: yeah.
0: I don't know, you could do worse. Those aren't the worst impulses in the world, right?
1: Well, not at all. Not at all. And it had nothing to do with, you know, I, I didn't really become aware of like an MFA reality until it was too late and I sort of couldn't go because I'd already, you know, gone far enough down the path on my own. I didn't have any peers that were interested in literature. It was very solitary, this quest of mine, which led to, I think, a good deal of wasted time and that I didn't have anyone to correct me or to guide me. But then when you get somewhere on your own, there's a there's something about that as well. Like It's a positive feeling to have right. arrived on your own. Um, but yeah, those books were were, were, were important to me. And, I, and I, I credit them with sort of implanting the idea in my mind that, oh, these people... This is what they do. They wake up in the morning and they just recount stories of their lives or just make up, I don't know, it it appealed to me. I was concerned at a young age about what to do. I saw the adults around me as most of them seemed fairly unhappy, and I equated that to what they did with their time, how they lived their lives, what they had to do in order to pay the rent. And so I was sort of... uh, more concerned about that than i think was the norm not that my parents were unhappy i just mean i'm thinking more of my teachers i guess my my public school teachers so i wanted to avoid that situation of feeling trapped beneath the the need to earn a wage and so the arts you know the arts beckoned
0: <laughs> yeah 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 well and I, I i think i read somewhere that you didn't love school all that much as a kid like you weren't
1: I like the social aspects of it. I think that that sort of, for me, was the primary function of school is is learning about human behaviors and, and how uh, the give and take of s- socializing and, um, you know, the importance of communication, clear communication. You know, you learn how to lie in high school. That was a big thing. You really sort of hone those lying skills, which are important. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, it's the adventure of, you know, your first girlfriend and your, you know, your first enemy and your first uh, whatever. So that was all good stuff, and that was I learned a lot. And that's sort of the foundation for the rest of your life in terms of socializing. But in terms of the academic aspect of it, I, I I was very lazy and I was quite contrary in a way that wasn't, I don't think rooted in anything other than just child childish ego. I had this thing that I had that I felt set me apart from my peers, which was that I was interested in literature, and I was probably a bit of a bore about it. But whatever, that was my identity. And um, I just had the sense of not needing any of it, the schooling. I mean, I knew that I didn't want to go to college, um, or I felt that I didn't—I had no desire to go to college, and I didn't have the grades to get me to any sort of particular college, and the money wasn't there for college. And so that was out. And, yeah, once once high school was passed, I, I, I dropped out in the second semester of the 12th grade uh, because I had thought that I would squeak by but then it was explained to me at that phase of the school year that I wasn't going to make it. And I was going to have to repeat the 12th grade or go to summer school, which I did not want to do. And I sort of wandered around campus for a couple days, not knowing what to do. And then I was like, what am I doing? And I just walked off campus and I got in my car and I drove home. And that was the end of my school career.
0: Wow. That was it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I moved to Vancouver. I had a, an apartment actually in Los Angeles on Willoughby and Poinsettia. That was my first apartment, and we were kicked out. Me and my friend Anton were kicked out after three months because we couldn't make the four hundred dollars a month. Right. was 200 bucks a month each. We just it was too, too much. And that was I remember it was we. I moved into this apartment, and like the week after that was the riots, and that part of Hollywood was all smoky. And I just remember thinking that the world seemed unwelcoming. And anyway, we got kicked out. I moved back in with my folks. I saved up seven hundred bucks, and I moved to Vancouver. And it's in Vancouver that I sort of really became a reader. More than a I, I got into the habit of writing daily or as much as I could, but it was my going to the library in Vancouver every day and just bringing home stacks of books and finding the authors that were writing in the way that I thought I wanted to write or were speaking to me. And I learned to be alone. Uh, I had no, no real deep friendships in Vancouver at the time. My friends in Southern California have always been a great distraction for me. I mean, God bless them. But... Uh, Friends, I learned about the, you know, for, uh, social life can come at the expense of, you know, your practice, right? So I moved to Vancouver. I didn't really know anyone. I had nothing much else to do other than work and read and write. So I did those things, and it was in those two years in Vancouver that I sort of figured it out. Like, yes, this is a fit. I can actually do this. I thought the work was good too. My writing, it was not, but I didn't know that, and I could sense, you know, there was an improvement. But yeah, those were, that was more or less, I think of as like the school, my school years, my apprenticeship was those two and a half or three years in, in Vancouver. Hey
0: everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond So, okay. So it sounds like you were on this track to become a writer and to like have a literary life from childhood. I mean, this was your identity. You said yeah. during your school days. And I can imagine if college and any kind of conventional education and professional trajectory is sort of off the table, that there's a more, what's the word for it? Like more existential, uh, like, uh, undercurrent. To the whole operation like you had to you had to make this work right there was no fallback i guess is the point
1: i never had a plan b and i always just had a job that was fine you know that would through the years of my you know when i left vancouver i always just had some sort of a job and i worked always with it in mind that i would work as little as possible to get by so the the best job i had in terms of facilitating my writing was the age of 24 to 30. I was worked at a bar that became the bar backdrop or inspired the bar backdrop for my first novel, but that was really good because it paid cash. It was under the table. I was living illegally. This is sort of a long story, but I had my green card taken away from me and I was living illegally in the U S for many years. And and, uh, so, yeah, I had to work under the table and, and the bar, the bar gig was so good because it was, First of all, I really liked the atmosphere, I really was a fan of drinking and they, there was lots of that going on at the bar and there was lots of excitement and strangeness and ugliness and joy and like the whole gamut emotionally. But they paid cash, it was under the table, it was a busy bar in Hollywood so the pay was quite good so I'd get a couple hundred bucks every shift and if I worked three nights a week, I would. it was enough to live in Echo Park. At the time, it was still cheap to live in Echo Park so... Um, Yeah, I would have my days free and many of my nights free, but I I would wake up most days and I would write quite dutifully for as many hours as I could do it. Uh, So those years were were where I really sort of got into the nitty-gritty of it, those 24 to 30, figuring out just my way in and um, trying to locate something like a voice.
0: So what bar were you working at?
1: I worked at a bar called Three Clubs, which is still open, I believe, and it's on Santa Monica and... I can't remember. Vine?
0: Is it yeah, on Vine? Very good. Yeah. I know that. Yeah, I know that bar. It's dark.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it seems pretty I I drove by recently and it was like it looked like they jazzed it up a bit, but it was a, it was a various experiences there. And I think it's described in the book where some nights there'd be uh you know famous famous people and a and, and, uh, doorman with like, you know, the whole velvet rope thing. And some nights it was just a total, you know, debauched violent nightmare and quite ugly but it was it was good in its way there was a lot of uh lively characters there and uh, i felt welcome there you know i felt like i was among my people in a sense so i mean by the last two years of it i loathed it i was really unhappy and i just felt like i was dying and i had to get out of there and i left the state to get away from my experience
0: what like too much too much drinking
1: just living foolishly. Yes, that was a big part of it, but it was also just sort of like gluttony and, and ugliness and, and sort of, I just, the bloom came off the rose after about four years. Sure. So I left uh, for Washington State and moved back in with my folks. My son's birth was a big part of, okay, I don't want my son, this, I, I didn't feel like a father and I had to sort of rehabilitate myself or tidy myself up in some way. So I returned to live with my folks who were living on Bainbridge at the time. Bainbridge Island and my father's a contractor so he was working renovating a home in Seattle and he was good enough to take me on I'd done a lot of construction when I was younger so I dusted off the old tool belt and my father and I every day would go early take a ferry into Seattle from Bainbridge Island and that was our commute was on this boat um So that was quite novel and it felt like the opposite life of uh, my life in in Los Angeles in that I became physically strong uh, doing the work and I was healthy and I wasn't drinking and I more or less stopped smoking and uh, still writing. Most mornings I would get up before and I would sort of tinker with this or that. I rewrote ablutions and I uh, got an agent through a mutual acquaintance
0: okay wait i want to talk about this because this is like a pretty serendipitous story i love these stories of how it happens right i yeah. I, I think i'm remembering this right like you had written uh, a draft of ablutions and then i want to say you asked uh, a screenwriter named dvd vicentes, vicentes that, yeah, yeah yeah who wrote high fidelity you right. some, you knew how did you know him? Like, give us the story because it's I met good.
1: Him through Matt Sweeney, who's a musician who's played with Will Oldham and, and uh, any number of other. Matt Sweeney's just sort of a, a... how do you describe Matt Sweeney? He's a hyper talented uh, and brilliant connector of people. He sort of has a real gift for um, oh, you should meet so and so. And Matt and I are still pals, and he's just a lovely guy. And he used to come through the bar, and and we had a there was a chumminess between us. And he brought DV by one time. And I was at the point where I'd written a rough draft of uh, what became the book. And it was really the first three parts of the book. I think there's four parts, but the fourth part had not been written. I didn't had known that there needed to be more, but I had these first three sections and I thought that they were good enough to be published, but I didn't know what that meant in terms of what to do next. I still was at a position in my life where very few people I knew were interested in literature certainly not in the way that I was in terms of trying to write books. In Los Angeles, I was wary of being one of those people, which the city is full of those people who say, I do this when they don't really do that. or they—it's You know what I mean? So I kept it more or less to myself. My, my real friends knew what I was up to, but I didn't know what to do next. And then DV came in with Sweeney one night, and I typically would give Sweeney drinks if he was around because he was my buddy, and I also gave DV many drinks and really sort of intentionally got him drunk. (laughs) And I was drunk. And at the end of the night after closing, I remember turning to him and I just knew that he had an agent and that seemed to be the thing, you know, like what's the next step. And uh, I admitted that I had written a book and that I wanted him to read it. And he was sweet enough to read it and he liked it. And he um, sort of brought the book to Sweeney's attention and, you know, Sweeney hadn't read it. Anyway, Sweeney introduced me to Peter McGuigan, who became my agent. And uh, yeah, Pete ran with it. And, and... But this all, I'm telling the story, and it's a sort of truncated story. Like, I didn't meet Pete till after I left the state. I was in Washington. And uh, so it unfolded over a series of months or maybe even more like a year and a half, or something like that. But I wrote the book. I got the agent. I sold the book. I moved to Portland. And that was the beginning of me working full-time
0: okay so before we leave the early part of your life I want to touch upon your mother I think you your mother's mother is Brit or was British Daphne Dagg
1: yeah she was. okay first okay
0: because I, I think it's interesting I'm always interested in how a writer's sensibility forms yeah and I, I think I read somewhere that you uh what like Monty Python was a big part of your Childhood,
1: a lot of it's Canada too, though. I mean, you know, the Queen's on the money in Canada. There's always a there's a there's a big British uh, Commonwealth influence. Sure. And yeah, I was exposed to, um, you know, my my British granny was just the sweetest woman, and I adored her, and I loved visiting with her. She lived on Vancouver Island in Sydney, where I was born, uh, up until her death. And she was very British. She wasn't a little bit British. She was like full bore. Right. And she would sort of—we'd be sitting next to each other at the table, and she would grab my hand and say, "Bacon is lovely, isn't it?" <laughs> oh yes, Danny, bacon is. And then she sort of pause, and then she'd grab my hand and say, "We're very good friends, aren't we?" And you well, know, things like that. She was just a really charming uh, woman who, who who was a positive presence in my life. But to be exposed to to British culture and British food and you know British behaviors, and then Canadian public television. Had a good deal of British programming, so that was just sort of in the background and it it let it's not that I identify as even remotely British myself, but I have an affinity for the the dialect and the 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 culture and uh, I feel at home when I'm in Ireland when I'm home when I'm visiting london uh, Scotland. These places make sense to me I could see sure. my, I could see myself living in any of those places.
0: For sure. For sure. And
1: as time passes, you know, the literature, yeah, I mean, I've I've become more or less obsessed with Commonwealth literature and it's become a big influence. I think is pretty evident in terms of like how I write dialogue, for example, or just my approach to literature generally, I think goes a lot to Commonwealth artists.
0: Are there particular ones that you feel are like really influential?
1: Many, many. I mean, I wouldn't know where to begin. Most of them are female authors uh, generally around the middle, middle, you know, like 1950s era. Uh, Ivy Compton Burnett and Barbara Commons and, um, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, Edna O'Brien. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's many, many.
0: Okay. And then just to kind of trace influence as well, uh, you know, when you were maybe a bit younger, like late high school and then entering into like the early adulthood and the bartending years, who were some of the writers that you latched onto as you were kind of educating yourself?
1: Uh, well, wh- any, any number. And a lot of them I read at the time. And, you know, you do this thing where you read the people you're supposed to, you're supposed to read or you feel you're supposed to read. So there was a lot of that sort of dutiful homework type reading, which was beneficial, but the ones who really stuck with me in terms of, I still sort of believe in them. The main one, I guess, would be Charles Portis. I read dog of the South and I think 10th grade and um, Portis is one of these people who a is, his intelligence is evident and, in his every line, and and he's so funny, and the the humor is very, it's never cruel. He just seemed a very human artist, and I admired that, and he made it look easy, so it made you feel like you could do it. Um, Not understanding, of course, how hard it is to get, how hard it is to make it look that way. Um, I remember reading several Hubert Selby Jr. books in high school, and admiring them, in so many ways and then seeing hubert selby reed my father took me to see hubert selby reed at largo in on fairfax oh no way he was
0: my uh, he was my grad school teacher oh wonderful yeah he and he was a great reader of his own work oh, I, it,
1: I, it really knocked me out and i because most of the people i was reading and still you know this is generally true people that i can't access because they're either infirm or or deceased um and here was this person who i mean he was older the books that I read were written mostly I think in the 50s 60s 70s but um here was this man and he was I think he opened up for Henry Rollins Henry Rollins was doing all these readings at Largo and it would be like him and Exine from X I saw Xine read also at McCabe's guitar shop but um anyway my father was really sweet about including me on these jaunts and he brought me into Largo which seemed very ritzy at the time I was sort of this dirty little grubby punker kid and would be and this was but this was the largo when it was on fairfax like the yep. original location but yeah across the street from Cantors. yep and um selby got up to read and i remember i've written about this before so i'm sort of repeating myself but i remember reading the work and it was so it's so wild and, and and bleak and not relentlessly bleak but there's a lot of bad news in these books and people behaving shittily and i was expecting this like maniac to show up you know and this who showed up was Hubert Selby, who was this very sort of quiet, well put together gentleman. And he read with this mixture of, like, it was really quite sort of sweet, his delivery almost, but there was such power to it. It was really mysterious. I couldn't put my finger on what it was, but as a 15 year old or however old I was, I don't think I was driving even at that point. It was just hugely moving. Like, okay, here's the magic person. Here's the, it was really an ideal in some way. I couldn't have seen him read at a better time in my life because. What is an artist? As a 15-year-old, you don't really know. What does it mean to be an artist? It's not just that you sit and do this thing. It's There was some sort of mystery to it all. And he solved the mystery to me in some way. Not in a way that I could necessarily verbalize, but it was just... He, here was proof that the people who create these documents are real living beings. Right. But he represented his work in such a moving way. It meant so much to him, but he wore his... He wasn't egocentric about it. He was just an interesting man and he was the real deal, you know, Selby was. Yeah. And uh, I was very lucky to see him read. It really clarified something for me.
0: Yeah, I felt the same way. It's funny. I got into, I mean, I ended up in Los Angeles because of grad school at USC and he was there. And after I had been accepted, they invited me to some, it was like some evening reading thing that they did and he got up and read. Yeah, and he just blew the doors off. And he was, you know, he was. By the time I got to him, he was had, was almost at the end of his life. Right. He di- he died like a year after I graduated. Okay, and uh, he had so much emotion. Yeah, you know, very very soft spoken. I always said he sounded sort of like a Muppet with a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. That, he had that kind of like you know voice. But man, when he read and he was feeling it, there was something really like palpably real about it. And there was also, I think, I mean, I have uh, I had other professors who had actually gone through the program years and years earlier, who had been taught by him and had known him when he was maybe um, like had a more of a harder, you know, harder edge to him. Um, There's something about him in my experience of him where like the wisdom that he sort of. What's the word? uh he kind of gave off this air of having hard won wisdom it was yeah. hard won i think is the point it wasn't something that he was faking and uh it was something that if he had any of it he had earned it because he had been through the ringer in life you know
1: yeah 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 and i remember his eyes he had really like these i'm probably romanticizing it because why wouldn't i but i just remember sitting there and witnessing this person and it was almost like he was vibrating and his eyes were so big and and, and uh He had such, there was such feeling and and emotion to what he was reading. I can't remember what he was reading, what book it was from. I think it was an excerpt from um, Requiem, maybe, but.
0: Maybe so, yeah.
1: Anyway, yeah, um, we're lucky to have crossed paths with that guy. He was awesome. It's strange. We both had, we share that, like the
0: fact that I want to say he's probably the first, like, quote unquote, real writer yeah. that, I, that I laid eyes on and was like, OK, so that's it right there. Yeah, you
1: know? yeah, yeah. And there's not that many of them walking around. I, I, I met Dennis Cooper at a wedding years later, and it had been many years since I, you know, I don't know why I, the smarter thing would have been to have gone to you know a reading series or acquainting myself with um, my peers or the people that I wanted to be my peers. But I never really did that. So to bump into a, an author who was publishing and, and reading and doing the thing, It was always meaning meaningful to me.
0: For sure. Um, okay. So I wanna get to the early stage of your career. You talk about debut you know, debuting with ablutions, getting an agent. You know, luck always plays a role, right, in anybody in any artist's success. Like you gotta work at it, obviously. You gotta put in your time. Yeah. But getting that agent, maybe that's you know it's the bartending. It's a social job and you're in Los Angeles and you're sort of you know, you have proximity to a lot of people in the creative arts, but it worked out, the book comes out and then you have to follow it up. Yeah. So can you just talk about the second novel process and how you approached it?
1: Yeah. So my experience of having the first book published was I think quite similar to most people's in that there was good news and bad news. I think it was, it was, I, I worked with a talented editor, Jenna Johnson, and the publishers were great, and everything was done well, I felt. The reviews were some very positive, some less positive, and then the book kind of just disappeared, which is, again, like I think that's the norm. But I wasn't really... Nobody walks you through the process of... When you've been waiting that long for something to be published and then it comes out i don't know what i was expecting I, I guess i was expecting for the discussion to go on longer or something but um in terms of doing press and things it did seem to be that the focus of the interviewers i mean which un- is understandable on the back of the book it says that i was a bartender or a bar back or whatever and the book's about a bartender or a bar back so the question was always is this an auto is this autobiographical which it was and wasn't and but i i i saw that I was, I didn't like talking about that. I didn't like the interviews where I was sort of being asked to compare the protagonist of the book with my own life, my own experience. Um, And I found myself wanting to start fresh and it occurred to me I could invent a story, invent characters out of whole cloth, but still sort of imbue the character's points of view with my own point of view you know, I just was aiming for something more traditionally fictitious what,
0: what was it about the interview process and talking about yourself with respect to the art that bothered you?
1: I don't know it's, and everybody was respectful. I guess I, I felt that there was a there was a a, a desire uh, for it to be about like the book's quite bleak, and the protagonist engages in ugly behaviors, and I think people wanted me to say, "Yes, this is me. that's the sense I got. And um I just that just seemed kind of distasteful or something. I don't know. I didn't want to I didn't want to be considered the person who punched a horse in the face, you know? Which I right. which I never did, Brad. Never,
0: For the record.
1: <laughs> yeah, I never punched a horse. But um I just saw that there was another way forward, which was the more traditional you know, fictitious setup and I began to wonder if I maybe should go back in time maybe not necessarily a traditional historical novel but something that took place before I was born and I was wandering around the neighborhood well no I've told the story so many times that I've probably ruined it in my mind like it's probably I'm wondering if this is actually what happened but I do remember working an exercise of two men on horseback It was like a writing exercise. I just wanted to write some dialogue, just sort of staying in shape. And they were more or less the same person, but they were bickering. I mean, uh, they weren't the same person. It was two individuals, but they were very similar in terms of their uh, point of view and, and attitude. They were both sort of salty. And then one of them got his feelings hurt. Just it happened organically in writing this exercise. And that was when that exercise became more than an exercise. And it became something that was sort of Interesting, interesting to me, it delivered above and beyond what I expected it to. A couple days later, I found a, a, I was at a yard sale down the street from a house in Portland, in northeast Portland. And there, there was a time life book for sale that was 25 cents. And it was about the gold rush. It was called the 49ers. And I'm not interested in American history or history generally, or I wasn't then. And I bought the book just for the pictures. And because it was a beautiful leather bound edition and I brought it home and the pictures, of the book seemed tied to this exercise of a few days prior. So these two things coming together were the sort of impetus for the writing of the book that became the sisters brothers.
0: And that was the big breakout book.
1: Yeah, that one connected in a way that, that, that was surprising, I think to everyone, uh, the publishers, me, it wasn't, um, I remember asking my agent and editor at the time, if I was to write a Western, what would you think? And they weren't against it, but they hadn't seen the text, and they weren't, they didn't say it was a great idea, (laughs) you know? And I, I did show the book to somebody early on who I thought it was, it really felt alive to me. I really was jazzed about it. And... I knew enough at this point. I mean, I'd been writing long enough to know that that feeling was elusive and that feeling wasn't a guaranteeable, you know. Oftentimes writing is work, it's drudge work. But this was something that was so joyful to work on. So I wanted to keep going with it and I showed it to somebody I trusted and she said, you know, this is really not very good and you should probably um, stop working on it. Really? Yeah, and it really hurt my feelings. I I bet, I bet. (laughs) And I was uh, confused, you know, and I was like, well... Well, I can't, you know, it didn't make sense to stop, didn't make sense to stop. So I kept going and yeah, it became the book that it became. And, and, um, but even up until it did well, I didn't have, and I still have no idea who's going to like what or why it doesn't really, I don't think it pays to worry about it or to consider it, but whatever, I think some artists have a sort of compass or a gauge or they know what people want and they give it to them or don't per their own needs. I want people to like the work and I want the more people to like it, the better. Like I, I I have ambition in that gory American way. Like it's just a part of, but the most important thing is just to do work that I feel good about. And so that's what comes out the work that I believe in. But in terms of what succeeds and what doesn't, it's always been just absolutely mysterious to me. And I hope that it always is.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, I've talked to a lot of authors and that this question comes up sometimes and I still have not found a satisfactory answer. I don't think anybody really knows. If anybody did, they would be the kingpin of the publishing world if they knew exactly what it was that would land.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, so yeah, that's it's a, it's a part of the process I'm involved in now where you send something out into the world and you're worried and stressed and proud and worried. Yeah. And then the world tells you what it's worth to them right and then somehow in the, in 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 the in the course of learning what it means to the strangers of the world and the critics of the world your own my own feeling for the book becomes clearer and clearer it's not that i don't know whether it's a good or bad book i i wouldn't publish a book if i didn't believe in it but there's a phase of not really knowing what its what its value is for me you know so it's a it's a strange part of the process and i'll never get used to it when a book makes its way into the world and you just sort of sit there and watch, watch the world dissect it.
0: Sure. No. Yeah, I know. That's a, it's a strange feeling. And I think like earlier in the career in one's career, there's also that feeling that you have when a book is out on submission. I think these are, these are, I mean, these are the parts of the process where the author has the least amount of control. (laughs) And it's a, it's a state of like total loss of control. You have no control over how a book, is going to do really and or how it's going to be received by a prospective publisher or an agent or whatever and si- yeah. sitting there waiting for a verdict is no fun
1: <laughs> it's not it's not but it's funny i hadn't thought of it as seating control but that's what it is and you're, in, you're you're fascistically in control when you're you know right you're in control as much as you can be in control of art when it's just yours and 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 it's not until you share it that you seed control yeah it's a very extreme it's like one way you know to be perfectly in control on friday and then saturday you're at the mercy of you know the gods
0: right right it's
1: it's jarring it's jarring i'll never get used to it yeah i don't like i don't like that part of it
0: no i don't think anybody really does and it's interesting to you you alluded to something a minute ago about how certain writers seem to be tuned to like what people want yeah or maybe they're working in a vein that just is more popular uh, some of this stuff too is just branding and I hate to reduce it to that but I, at a certain level of success I think pe- like the average reader in the supermarket or at the airport just grabs a book based on familiarity with the author's name sure. or some familiarity with past work but I You know, those kinds of authors aside, like the James Patterson's and the Stephen King's of the world or whatever, I do think there are certain artists who have a more finely tuned sense of popular culture and like have a more finely tuned sense of what will please the reader at this particular moment. I don't think think they're all that common, actually. I think most writers have no clue. I have no clue. I'm not great at that, like knowing exactly how to, it's like they have a, the people that I'm talking about, it's like they have like a barometer for the cultural moment or something. I don't know, but it's a, it's a strange gift.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You have to study the culture to know it. Right. And really sort of wonder about it and discuss it and, 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 and dissect it and, I, I don't really do that. So I think that my work is oftentimes, I remember when French Exit came out, I was referring to it as like the least fashionable book that you could have ever hoped to. It was so it was so not of the moment. You know, there's arguably sympathetic portrayal of these rich white people. And not that sympathetic, but, you know, partly sympathetic. And I just thought, you know, what can you do? I mean, you don't really get to choose the books you write. I mean, some people do, but... For me, it's always just sort of like if the book will be written, then you write it because a lot of most of the books won't be written, you know, if the book will will communicate with me and allow itself to be written by me, then that's the book that's coming out.
0: Well, and you strike me as a particularly like bookish person and like devoted to literature, not just in terms of the work that you do, but also maybe in terms of like your patterns of consumption. Uh, I know that you're not a big tech guy. Right, you have like no TV, no internet, no smartphone, or at least you were living that way for a time.
1: I have a I have a flip phone. I got a TV. My folks give me a TV, but I, I just watch DVDs on it. that I get from mostly from the library. I don't have Wi-Fi at home. My I live with my son and his girlfriend, KJ Gus and KJ, and they both have smartphones. So I've it was once a time when I would go to this coffee shop every day and check emails, but now I'm kind of lazy. So if I you know, ahead of a press cycle or in the midst of a press cycle for a book, you really do need to check your emails every day. Uh, so now most mornings I'll come down and I'll steal KJ's Wi-Fi from her phone.
0: Got it. Okay. And
1: so, you know, I'm checking in on every day, but I, I do prefer the phase when I'm working on the book and I don't check my emails for, you know, a week or even two weeks at a time, which is... Nice.
0: Okay, so the point that I nice. want to make, be considering how austere you are, you know, in term, you know, at least comparatively speaking, uh, most people I think are more plugged in than you are. But when it comes to these people who have this antenna for the culture and who maybe have a more developed sense of what the culture wants, what mystifies me is how people have enough time to consume the amount of culture one needs to consume in order wow. to cultivate that sense. Like who are these people who watch every single new series and can comment on everything in almost real time and read all these books and watch the movies? I mean, that is the part of it that I can never grasp. Like A, having the desire to do that, that seems overwhelming to me, but B, just having the time. I I guess people have different ways of spending their time, but it's a lot.
1: Yeah, I struggle for time, and I, I, I I'm cautious about how I spend it. But I still have the sense of sort of being behind. So I, I I went to the same thing. I don't know how I don't know how they consume as much as they consume.
0: So I want to get to the librarianist, and I think like we sort of set it up nicely. Um, you know, we're not going to be able to get to all of your books, but I think we get to the sisters brothers. There have then been, been subsequent novels, each of which I think is n- notable for a variety of reasons but the one I want to focus on is how standalone and different each of your books is like, there's a real versatility to you as a writer. And I think there is as part of your creative project, the desire to uh, be like working on something that is really like each project is distinct from what preceded it. Is that right?
1: I would say that's true. I think a bit too much has been made of that because it's if it was more intentional, I think I would be able to get behind the sentiment a little bit more, but as I was saying, you know, the book you struggle to 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 you struggle to create the universe for a book and then that universe is realized or not realized and the book is written or not written and that's the, that's it, that's the deal. You know, the characters either come to life or the world either comes to life or it doesn't. So I tend to think about things such as like, what, what is this book in relationship to the other books? I tend to think about that after the fact, but in composing the books, it's just doing the work every day and this is what's happening. It's not really a process of um, pondering. Like I can look at my body of work and I, it all seems to be composed by the same hands, but I recognize that the books like the, the, the world of each book is different from the one preceding it. I'm sort of saying two things at once. I agree with what you're saying. And then I do think that they are, they're separate and I have a, felt the frustration of certain readers who want me to repeat myself
0: Mm -hmm.
1: more, more clearly. But at the same time, I do believe that it's all the work of, it's evidently the work of one person. Like I, I feel ownership over all those books.
0: Do you feel like there are binding threads that you can see that maybe readers and critics don't see well enough?
1: Yeah. I think the main one probably being the humor or worldview, the, the sense of, um, you know, they're all about human behaviors and they're all about ultimately, I think, the folly of of, of mankind. But in a well-meaning way, I don't have a lot of malice or, or negative feelings towards humanity. That probably would be maybe the through line is my sense of um, loving people, loving uh, loving being alive, just feeling curious, in, ongo- in an ongoing sense, feeling curious about what's coming next, and and, and uh, the dissection of our, our histories, and our pasts, it's all just human behaviors, right? It's all just about human behaviors, but hopefully told in a fond tone. So I think that the, you know, it's not particularly nihilistic, or even ablutions is quite dark, but I think that at the heart of it, there's some sort of sense of wonder or adoration for the exercise of being alive, living a life.
0: Well, I read somewhere where you said that, uh, I like to immerse myself in a world I don't know. You mentioned curiosity just a second ago. And I think that maybe part of your process too, is trying to learn through writing, like writing into places where you're curious or writing into places where you have maybe some sort of gap in knowledge or.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's an exercise that you, you know, writing is an exercise in that you, if you're writing fictitious characters and it's an exercise in empathy, you know, where you're sort of like, okay, well, this is a character that I can't relate to personally. This is not my life experience in any way whatsoever. But what would it feel like to be this person? And to command that person's point of view in a believable sense involves uh, empathy, right? And that's interesting. And it's much in the same way that working at the bar, I got to know so many different kinds of people. And at the end of my tenure at the bar, I felt like I could speak to anyone in the world. It was really good for that. You know, this thing where it's like an assault of humanity. And some people are evil, actually evil. And some people were benevolent to the point of seeming saintly and everything in between. And it was your job to furnish them with what they wanted and to chat with them. Part of the job, right? So that was beneficial. But I feel like the my writing practice is sort of an extension of that exercise. Yeah, no, I get putting, that. Putting You're putting yourself in somebody else's position.
0: Yeah. What an education in humanity to be a bartender, especially in in Hollywood at a crowded dark yeah. bar and also a bar, as you said, that sometimes see celebrities and that sort of thing. Like, do you have any great stories that you'll share? Like of somebody coming in and.
1: Well, I remember n- nothing, nothing, nothing particularly juicy other than just the arrival of these, the Renee Zellweger famous, uh, lady
0: like, yeah.
1: she or something, but Anyway, she worked at the bar before I worked at the bar, and I believe she had my job. I don't know if I got her job, but we had the same job. I think that she was a bar backslash bartender. And she became famous quickly, and it was a sort of lore among the people at the bar. Most of the employees were actors. Ninety percent of the employees were uh, would be actors. So this was like a wonderful story for them. And every once in a while, Renee would come by and say hello to the manager named Milai, who had been her boss, who is now my boss, who was just the loveliest man. And she had, I think, a birthday, some significant birthday party, her 30th or 35th or something. And she had a birthday party and she rented out the bar. And it was, you know, George Clooney and Tom Cruise and all these people. And it was just so bizarre to see these sort of famous people. It's like a bobblehead. It's like bobbleheads. I don't yeah. mean heads are large. I just mean it's, they, they don't look like real people because you've seen their faces too many times. And so there's a surreality to to seeing Tom Cruise walking uh, walking walk through the bar with his drinks. Who was then, walking uh, by Tom Cruise? Yeah, yeah. George Clooney was really sweet, and Tom Cruise was not very friendly at all. And he was sort of didn't want to wasn't didn't want to make eye contact with anyone. Do you know that song Sundown? No, Sundown, I... you better take care. If I find you, you've been creeping around my backstair. Gordon Lightfoot. I remember that song came on. This is such a stupid story, I'm sorry, Brad, but <laughs> I was, you know, drinking and working and cleaning up the room, which is my job is to go out in the crowd and grab all the glasses. I was the bar back. And uh, I remember Sundown came on, which is a good tune from the 70s. And George Clooney said, I love this song. And he got up and he started dancing around to Sundown. And that was, that's my, that's my George Clooney story.
0: <laughs> well, I have one Tom Cruise story. It's oh. funny. I might've told it on this show before I've told it, a, you know, I feel like I've told this story cause it's a, it's my one Tom Cruise story, but I was at a party that he was at and it was after an award show like you know I don't know it's a long story why I was there but when you live in LA it's not that it's not that cool like the reason I was there I was just sort of there and it was like Tom Cruise is here and you know the word spreads somehow when somebody like that famous (laughs) walks into a room and I was like all right it's crowded in here and I can't stand. These kinds of things, but I was like, I'm gonna lay eyes on Tom Cruise if he's in the room somewhere. Like I've got to at least lay eyes on this guy, yeah. If he's here, and so I'm like, I, you could kind of feel where he was, <laughs> yeah. uh, because of the the energy in the room. And so I sort of like moved towards it, and I was sort of squeezing through, and it got to be so much that I I bailed before I actually saw his face, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I got close enough. <laughs> that like i could see the back of him yeah and there was like at one moment where he like threw his head back and did that laugh
1: <laughs> and yeah. that
0: was that was the closest i got and then i just sort of like pieced out and got out of there but That's it amazing. is weird to be in a room with somebody who's that famous
1: it must be awful to be that famous honestly i, I can't imagine it i mean i i wouldn't have the emotional tools to handle it at all but i, I have empathy for people who those poor famous people Yeah. I mean, right? It would be, no, but it would be awful. It would just be a terrible time. Every room you you walk in, that's the the energy shift. Just because you're there, I, I, yeah. it's just hellish to me. I can't imagine. Yeah, me as well. I think, I mean, I don't know. People
0: who have like a writerly temperament are not cut out for that sort of thing. No. <laughs> I, I don't true. think, or most of them anyway. But one one thing I want to talk to you about craft, and I guess it begins with the Sisters Brothers a bit, but it carries forward all the way to the present day and with the librarianist has to do with plot and has to yeah. do with maybe your, your approach to writing fiction. You talked about wanting to kind of move away from maybe the fiction that could be considered more autobiographical explicitly to doing something that's, that, that's more, I don't know, externally focused or invented from whole cloth. But you also, and crucially, when you were working on The Sisters Brothers and as you have worked on subsequent novels, paid careful
1: attention to plot, right? Yeah, I hadn't thought of it with ablution so much. There is a plot there somewhere, but it wasn't at the forefront of my mind in, in in writing the book. But that being the first book, it was also, you know, I was just finally doing the thing I'd been trying to do for twelve or thirteen years. Like I had the sense of finally doing the thing. I mean, I tried writing a number of books up to that point, so. I wasn't, I didn't really have time to sit and ponder about plot. and I wasn't really reading that much plot heavy fiction. And, uh, yeah, I was just doing it and completing it. And that was it. That was the document and it came out however it came out. But with the second book with sisters brothers, I was considering plot more approaching it almost in a sort of contrary sense of like th- my belief at that point in time was that plot was not particularly interesting or necessary. And, um, that books should be about something else other than a contrived storyline. But here I was writing a Western and Westerns have to have stories. So a story sort of materialized and I followed it and I found a, that it's much more difficult to write a plot driven fiction than I had anticipated and B that I I enjoyed it. You know, I, I really enjoyed tying things up and putting things in an order in an effort to achieve some sort of, you know, the, the the fabrication of a plot, I, I enjoyed it more than I would have anticipated. And so I think that the practice sort of just stuck. I, I I don't think that my plot's there in all my books. I don't think that I'm necessarily like a page-turning author in the way of, say, somebody like Stephen King. But um, it's definitely a consideration in everything I do now, sure. The idea
0: well, but, of... I mean, you say the words uh, or page-turning. Like, that's a really, I think it's a nice and like a... Uh, it's an effective way to think about it, whether you're writing something that's really meant for popular culture, or you're writing something that's a little bit more offbeat. The basic project of writing a book for a reader is to make the reader want to keep turning the pages.
1: (laughs) That's true. And and page turner is often presented as in a sort of pejorative light. And I, I, I don't mean to perpetuate that. I think that there's different reasons to turn the page. You know, sometimes it's purely because of the plot and you have to find out what happens to the characters next. But sometimes it's the language that's carrying you through, or the observations are carrying you through, or what's not said is carrying you through. So, but I, I agree that it's certainly a hope of mine that somebody reading any of my books is turning the pages. You know? yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> well, well, well because, because they want to rather than they feel, you know, duty bound.
0: Well, when it comes to the librarianist, I, I want to talk to you about this notion of wanting to write yourself into a world that you don't know. Yeah. And the, f- the sense that I got and feel free to disagree with me, but I was like, wow, this feels like a dress rehearsal for being older. This feels like <laughs> Patrick was sort of imagining what it's like to get toward the end of life and yeah. to be an old person yeah, I think And so. that's a, that, uh, what a useful exercise. It's something I think we should do more of. I think it's useful to like imagine death too. Like it's something that I think most people try to sort of push to the side and not think about, but yeah, it, it feels like a, uh, feels like that's part of the project. Am I, am I barking up the right tree?
1: Yeah, you are. That's the tree. Um, I, I, I was helping out at a senior center pre-pandemic and I was reading to the seniors once a week. I would go in and read for an hour or two. And sit and chat with these folks, and this was just up the road from my house. And um, yeah, just the realization that that oftentimes seniors are 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 not part of the cultural conversation. That seniors are largely invisible in our society, and I think that this is wrong. And I don't understand why it is that way. I think that I'm guilty of being the same. I I mean, I. I it's something I learned. These people taught me and in, in spending time with them, which is just that um, these are people who know more than we know and have experienced more than we've experienced. And why would they be pushed to the side? Why why are we ignoring these people when they're oftentimes as or more fascinating than any of the younger people that we're in touch with? So I enjoyed meeting with um, most, if not all of these people and reading to them was a was, um, sometimes an exercise in frustration, but oftentimes quite moving and getting to know certain of the people at the senior center. I remember there was one man who since passed away and I, he was just this really charming man. I liked him so much and he just sort of sat there and he would listen to the, me read whatever it was I was reading that week and, and, um, he listened really hard not because he was hard of hearing, but because he would get this really serious look on his face, and he was sort of really invested, and he was was supportive of my being there. So he and I hit it off, and, and I came to learn that he was originally from Detroit and had been in a soul band who had opened up for Otis Redding. And I said one day, why are you in Portland? How did you come to Portland? And the senior center, which is now closed, was on a street called Albina. And he said, well, do you really want to know? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I was driving from Detroit to Seattle. I was going to work at Lockheed on the line in a factory. And I stopped in Portland because I was tired, not knowing anyone here. But I knew that Albina, the street that we're on now, which has since been largely gentrified, was this was all black owned and all black small businesses. And he said, I was on this street and I stopped in a bar to get a bite and a drink. And I saw a beautiful woman sitting at the bar. And he said, I was very smooth in my youth, he said. And you could see that it was true. He had a really raspy voice. And he uh, uh, ordered a drink for this woman and sent it to her. And he was just admiring her physically. And then he came and sat and talked to her. And he said that they fell in love and that he never left Portland and that she became his wife. And uh, she had died three or four years earlier before him telling me this story. But they had lived their entire life in this neighborhood. And he'd met on the same block that we happened to be sitting on. It was just from the point of view of a writer, you know, you hear these stories and it's remarkable, tumbling. It's a wonderful thing. We all have stories. Most of us just don't get the chance to tell them. You know? So I was thinking of these people as I sat down to work on my fifth book. And, and it was, I think fairly natural that they would bubble to the surface because they had an effect on me emotionally.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so many ways I mean, I can, I have so many problems with uh, modern culture, modern, modern American culture, but this, this notion of like uh how youth obsessed we are yeah. and, and how devalued older people are in our culture Disab- yeah. disabled people i have a disabled child so i see that like how invisible that community can be and that there's a lot of crossover with older people oftentimes but it's wrong headed and it's rich territory too like you know like you say that story that you just told about that gentleman that's just one story
1: and he's just sitting there holding the story right just- possesses it right if i hadn't asked him he wouldn't have told it i know he's told it to any number of people in his lives but it enriched my life to hear it right yeah you know, stories do you know you're ideally you're enriching the lives of strangers so yeah i i thought and then i'm at the point too where my parents i'm at their house right now but they're getting older you know and, and they're they both have their health thank god and but it's something that you consider you think of it what is what, what does it mean to, to age and um you know, and then there's a the thing with artists, too, where there's not really the idea of, of uh, I have no plans to retire. Not that I'm retirement age now, but I mean, when I think of myself in the future, I can't imagine a time where I wouldn't be doing something relating to language arts because it's my whole life. So if I'm going to do this through to the end, I'm just wondering what's, you know, I look at my body of work now and I, I don't necessarily. I just want you know, you wonder about the work to come, you know what's it going to look like? And um, where will my interests take me to?
0: Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point because I, I mean, we're cl- we're relatively close in age and I look forward and I'm like, I don't feel like I've done my best work. I hate to, f- that, that's a terrible, I don't, I think most people, you almost have to convince yourself that you haven't if you're going to keep going, <laughs> that yeah. there is something in the future that you could do that is going to be your best stuff. And then you look around at artists that remain vital into their old age. The the most I can come to in terms of how to do that is that they never stop being fans. You know, they never stop consuming and like they don't get jaded, you know, and they're always kind of paying attention to new stuff. They don't, I mean, I don't know. Some of it is just following your nose and kind of reading what you like and listening to what you like and what moves you, but it just seems like the ones who remain vital kind of remain open in that way
1: yeah you have to keep you have to keep looking i think a lot of people sort of hang up their quest at a certain point and they just sort of recycle earlier feelings or earlier ideas not everyone but this happens to some people but then you see someone like i saw the sunra orchestra uh play you know sunra's passed on but the orchestra still play and the leader of the band i think is 99 and the there's a gentleman and they're all mostly seniors other than one or two newer players, but I mean, there's a gentleman who plays, I believe he plays tenor saxophone. I can't remember his name, but he's in his seventies or eighties. And at every show, at some point he gets up and he starts doing cartwheels and the music's so powerful. It's so strong. And it's a testament to their ongoing brilliance. And just like these are freakishly gifted people, but these are people who never stop practicing and they never got lazy and they never stopped pushing and it's it's work you know the perpetuation of your interest in any subject is work you know it's joyful work for me and hopefully for most people it's joyful work but it is you know it's labor it's time out of your life and you're exercising your brain muscles and you're focusing on this thing and i think a lot of people just lose that in the same way that they lose an exercise practice or whatever so i i agree i'm long-winded of saying that I agree with you I, I think that the, the key to longevity is to maintaining uh, an interest and to, to know that with the interest you, you know interests naturally diverge and shift and mutate and as they diverge and shift and mutate your own practice also diverges and mutates and um, but you have to I think you have to continue to to you have to continue on the path of your quest in mm-hmm. order to and, uh you know a fascination with your own work and with the, the world around you
0: so when it comes to the protagonist of the librarianist bob comet yeah. i imagine he is drawn you know s- somewhat from yourself somewhat from some of the uh, elders that you might have met when you were doing this volunteer work at the senior center um i mean right that's that's yeah you know, his... a
1: of, there's a lot of me in there uh frankly but there's a lot of me and ethan too i mean the I learned with sisters brothers with something that I didn't know before, which is that when you invent a character, oftentimes you're not necessarily inventing a fully three-dimensional character out of thin air. You're sort of imbuing it with your own points of view or the points of view of people that you know intimately. And as time passes, I, I can relate to a lot of my characters in a way that it's not that I'm writing Bob as myself, but I understand him in a way that I think feels the understanding is rooted in a sort of, um, commiseration or a a sense of kinship so yeah there's there's a good bit of me in there there's also just sort of an idealized version of uh, a perpetuator of language arts sort of benevolent book loving sprite yeah a librarian i mean like just like the
0: the most devoted almost like priestly librarian
1: yeah i mean my affection for librarians and libraries is boundless libraries have had a profound effect on my life so It was an homage to to the men and women who who work in that field. Also, I was thinking of, uh, before he became a librarian, I thought he could be a a used bookseller, independent bookstore owner. Those people are heroic to me, obviously. But yeah, uh, I've been wanting to write somebody who was bookish for a long time, but then there's a question of, how do I make this character? Is this a dynamic character? You know, reading is a sort of, what is this? It's like when you already see a movie and it shows a writer and he's feverishly writing at a typewriter. (laughs) Right. It's so so boring and it doesn't have anything to do with composition really. Um, So how do you present somebody who is doing even less in that he's sitting and reading? And I think that the answer is, is, was to, to, to focus on the world around the person. Yeah. Well, and also,
0: also like the love, triangle. it's a love triangle story.
1: Yeah. There's some, there's some gossip in there, which is always good for page turning yeah um bob bob is one who i i I can relate to him insofar as his relationship to to literature and the people that populate the books he admires that relationship is 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 easy and and uh you know without turbulence but real life is 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 another story for him so i think that's something probably most bookish people can relate to to some degree yeah Um, no doubt my relationship to liter- literature is, is so simple. It's so easy going and it's without strife or like, you know, ennui. but then real, real life's not like that.
0: No. Well, I think it's a book. It was this book written during the pandemic.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: Cause the, like, I mean, I'm sort of reading, reading between the lines here, but in addition to being a story where you're kind of exploring old age prior to being, a person of older age. And in addition to being in, like an homage to like, you know, librarians and perpetuators of the language arts, it is also a book that at its heart to me is about a man who is kind of an isolate in search of community, whether he knows it or not, it's about him finding human connection.
1: Yeah, And, yeah, yeah. and
0: that feels, that feels, I, I understand psychologically how a story like this might have been born during the the pandemic and during that kind of imposed isolation because I think everybody was sort of cut off, so. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think one led to the other, absolutely. And I was one of these people who, at the beginning of the pandemic, in spite of you know concerns for the health of the world and everything, when it came down to, okay, you're gonna be alone for a really long time uh, or you're not gonna be able to socialize the way you had been before, I was all for it and even excited by it because I I, I do spend a lot of time alone already. And I thought, I can do this standing on my head. This won't be hard at all. But the difference I learned between my behaviors pre-pandemic and during the pandemic were one, one, in the first instance, it's a choice, right? I want to be alone. And that's easy. But when someone tells you you have to be or when you have to be owing to uh, common sense or, or health concerns, it changes the dynamic and I think that it's human nature to want what you can't have I found myself missing people in a way that was surprising to me missing the world missing travel something that I complain about when I'm doing it but I just oh get me on a coach a coach trip across the ocean my god <laughs> and so that mood seeped into the book I think there there was any number of things that were we could file under like b for bad news during the writing of this book there was the, the pandemic and the sorrow that came with the pandemic. There was sort of some health issues and some social issues mm-hmm. and David's death. And life just seemed hard. You know, I was sort of pushing against the current, I felt like, for the entire duration of the writing of the book. And the book was a son of a bitch to write, much harder than the other ones. And I think that that was symptomatic of the mood, but also just a part of it. I just think that it was going to be a hard book no matter which way uh, it, it went. So I think that that mood has to seep into the pages. I hope that it's ultimately like a hopeful book or a positive book. I think of it as being that way, but there's definitely some bad news in there.
0: Yeah. Well, it has a sweet heart. I feel like this book does and Bob is such a sympathetic character and there is, I mean, even the harder parts of the book, there is a kind of sublime, like, um, dark comedy like vibe to it that I felt like the Ethan stuff. And I don't know that, that stuff. I'm trying to think of like what I would compare it to. Is there a, I guess maybe I'm thinking of that Coen brothers movie and I'm blanking on the name of it. It was the one that was set in suburban Minnesota. I actually quite like it. It's really dark, man, but
1: I haven't seen that one I I think they're great but I am not familiar with that anyway, one. Anyway,
0: yeah, there's a there's a kind of a similar scenario, not not entirely the same, but a a friend, you know, and his his friend's wife get together. <laughs> um but anyway, that that stuff is drawn, I think honestly but with a an appropriate light touch. It's not overwhelming is the point, you know. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. 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 I I tend to avoid like the truly dire or if I arrive at the truly dire, I'm usually only there for a little moment. It's not, I'm not a wallower in my life or in my work. I don't think, or I I don't, I hope I'm not. Yeah. So yeah, I'll give out some bad news from time to time, but it's hopefully tempered, uh, to the point of it still being palatable.
0: Well, I, uh, I always ask people, I mean, it's, it's such a, I don't know why I do this to people, but you're celebrating the publication of a librarianist. And I'm going to ask you if you're working on anything else. <laughs> like, no, is, okay. yeah, is, I don't, I, I, do, I feel like you're probably a writer. You seem pretty industrious. You screenwrite. I think you adapt your own work. Do you ever do any yeah. screenwriting? Like, like stuff that you wrote? A, do you do stuff that's just like, like only for the screen or do you only do adaptation work?
1: Oh I guess I've adapted only adapted, but I'm, I, am uh, I, I, when i finished the you know i finished the final draft of the librarianist i sort of put around for a day or two and i always have this sense after something's done and in particular with this one because it was a, a pain of just feeling not even joyful just conf- confusion and hostility I don't, know why, I don't know why i'm just sort of driving around peevishly <laughs> shopping for coffee and kind of being rude to everyone and honking my horn i don't know I I keep waiting for the moment where I feel like I did it, you know, and it's just not going to come and I've accepted that and that's fine. But I know now I know myself well enough to know now that if I don't have something going, my life tends to unravel in terms of I just don't know what to do with myself. It's so wrapped up in my sense of identity. And if I don't work, then I feel like I'm lazy and I'm a bad person. So there was a day or maybe two days where I wasn't working at all and I didn't touch my computer And then I started working on a spec TV TV show and it was so different than the book. It's much more sort of violent and stupid and funny and noisy and and it was just the sort of opposite of this much more sort of sensitive, uh, sedate world that I've been living in. And I wrote six hour-long episodes in like three months or something, really just... And then there was the writer's strike. Well, I was just getting to the point where I was, I have, um, actually working with DV again, DV Vincentis. we've come full circle and now he's working with me and he, me and him and my manager are going to try to sell the show, but we can't do that right now because the writers strike. Oh, right. So I was coming to the end of this like spasm of, uh, work anyway. So it came at a sort of opportune time. So we have put a pin in that for now and we'll come back to it after the strike is lifted. And in the meantime, I'm just working not very hard, with a new book I have an idea for a book but I don't know who the protagonist is or what kind of a man he is or what he wants or what he's I'm trying to figure all these the big questions out but I'm sort of looking at this thing every day and I'll work a little lazily for an hour or two hours but I'm also doing mainly I'm just busy doing stuff like this just like talking about this new book so well sure which is a nice thing it's because it keeps me feeling like I'm doing something but it's it's just chatting with like you know smart, sweet people like yourself. and um, But it's, it's part fun. of the
0: job. It's part of the job. You have to, you, you spend all this time writing a book. You do have to go out and uh, give it a bit of a push, right?
1: Yeah, but it's like the it's a dissection of the work, which again, as I was saying, like I don't really know what to say about it in the beginning, but you learn in, in, in discussing it with, with people who have read it and have their own points of view regarding the book. And So it's not boring. Uh, press can get tiresome after a time, but um, I, I do enjoy it. And you're alone so much. And then so okay, you're forced to socialize a bit. And that's good. I'm going to travel around a little bit in Canada, mostly. It's all stuff I look forward to. But it sort of solves the problem of what next because there's this thing that needs doing right now. So I'm doing that I'm working on the novel, which I, I, as of today, I feel like it'll probably be my next novel. But who can say, I'm curious about the TV show, because if that became a real thing, that would probably eat up a lot of my time.
0: What is can Um, you give any hints as to what that show is about?
1: It's about the relationship of a career criminal and, a, and an orphan who's just been released from his orphanage and their fates overlap. And they, he, the older criminal is, uh, wants to wants to mentor the younger person. And he's the last person in the world who should be mentoring anyone. He's got like terrible life advice every step of the way. So it's about an inept mentor. But then it's also essentially a crime spree story. They uh, get into some trouble, which. Involves them fleeing the country for um, one of the islands on the Canadian border. And they're hiding out on the island. And in the course of their hiding out on the island, they embark on a crime spree. Okay. Which goes, which goes badly. <laughs> but right. there's a whole, uh, there's like a nunnery, there's a puppy, there's a sheriff, there's a journalist, there's a Guinness Book of World Records person, there's there's a, an obese cat who may or may not get into the Guinness Book of World Records. There's a whole universe of, you know, insane people um, clashing, basically.
0: You had me at obese cat. I mean, yeah. that sounds good. So yeah. I wish you luck with it. I appreciate the time. Congratulations on The Librarianist and on this sort of early stage novel that you have going. And uh, just wish you all
1: the best. Thank you, Brad.
0: All right, folks, there we go. That was my conversation with Patrick DeWitt. His new novel is called The Librarianist, out this week on Echo. I do not believe that Patrick DeWitt has any internet presence whatsoever no website, no social media. Just read his books. Again, the new one is called The Librarianist, available from Echo in hardcover, ebook, and I'm sure there's an audiobook. So go get it wherever books are sold the other people podcast is listener supported if you had a good experience you can support the show at patreon.com slash other ppl pod don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen you can also subscribe on youtube if you would like to get some other people merchandise some apparel a t-shirt a sweatshirt you can do that at the show's official website OtherPPL.com. Sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter at bradlesty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes and you're feeling generous, I would appreciate it if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen. Give it a rating, write a review. If that's an option, it helps new listeners find the show. You can watch my conversation with Patrick DeWitt on YouTube. You can follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you would like to advertise on this podcast, the media kit for the show can be found at otherppl.com. If you have feedback for me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is out there right now waiting for you in trade paperback ebook and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So check it out. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up on Friday, there will be another flashback episode where I dig into the archives and share a cut from an older episode of Note. And then on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Sarah Rose Etter. She has a new novel out on Scribner It is called RIPE. I had a great conversation with her. So, stay tuned.